My name's Marcus, not Spartacus. I've been called all sorts of things. <laughs> um, I'm going to get right back at Paul because uh, he called me a name. I'm going to call him irresponsible. You know, he was talking about he was talking about taking his last twenty-five dollars, right? What did you, you you didn't say flat broke? What was the word you used? Stony broke. Yeah, one of those old English words that we don't use anymore. He was flat broke, and he gave his last twenty-five bucks away. That's irresponsible, you would say, right? That's kind of reckless. So anyway, there. Now we're even. Yeah. You ever been re- been accused of, of doing something reckless or irresponsible? Um, I remember one time as a as a kid, my my father came home. My, he ran his own business, and uh, we lived with our, our we were teenagers, I think, and and my grandparents lived with us downstairs. And he came home. And uh, he announced to my mom, he said, Honey, we're going to Mexico, you and me. I got tickets. We're leaving tomorrow. And I've already packed everything, got our bags packed. We just need some T-shirts and underwear and a toothpaste, and we're ready to go. And people might have said, Well, that's irresponsible. I mean, that's kind of reckless. I mean, that's not planning things through and... And, and, you know, how can you just leave your business? You leave some guy in charge of running this business and, and you're doing this all on a, on a whim, throwing caution to the wind. But he did it because he loved my mom and he wanted to have this, this uh, passionate outpouring of, of honor and, and, and love for her. So that's why he did it. This isn't something that somebody does who's, who's thinking rationally, but someone who's, who's consumed by, by passion and a deep love. And uh, someone who's, who's committed to that object of their love, right? My dad didn't get out his spreadsheet and his calculator and go on Priceline and look for the best deal and plan everything. He just did it out of his heart and out of his passion. And other people might say, well, what's, what's he doing? That's kind of irresponsible. I mean, he's not really planned that very well. He's just going to leave the kids with the grandparents and leave the business in charge of these employees. And... It's always easy to stand by when someone's doing something radical like that and to judge them, isn't it? Instead of feeling happy for them. So anyways, why are we talking about my dad's uh, vacation history? Hopefully it'll all make sense soon. I'm going to invite you to uh, turn uh, to Mark 14. And we're going to read the passage of uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? This could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money could have been given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with me, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. 
She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial, to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the word, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's just pray over this passage. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for all of the, all of the little stories and, and things in here that you've put in there. They're all there for a reason, Lord. You've put them there for us to, to learn and to observe and to reflect on our own lives so that we might be challenged by, by your word and that we might be called to, to change our lives, to grow to an increasing likeness, to conform to your image, Lord, for the plan that you have for us is, is to not stop growing, but to continue to carve out those things in our lives that are holding us back and slowing us down and to strive on to, towards the perfection that you have for us, Lord. So I pray for this word this morning, that it not be my word, but it be your words, Lord, and that they would fall on hearts prepared to hear them. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you're uh, visiting with us today, um, we've been going through Mark uh, chapter by chapter, and so the, the brief history of that is that this is, Jesus has been on the uh, Temple Mount. We've talked about the triumphant entry and Jesus teaching at the Temple and the, uh, the Pharisees challenging him with all sorts of questions and tricks and uh, the Pharisees um, increasingly getting frustrated with Jesus because he's gaining in popularity. He's challenging their religious authority. And uh, now as we enter chapter 14, Jesus retreats from this public life and he spends time with some of his closest friends and, and allies. Not all of them are allies, as we will see, but he spends time with them uh, in, an intimate, uh, in an intimate dinner. Um, this was all during the, the feasts of Passover and, and feasts of unleavened bread. And um, these were important feasts to the Jews. I don't want to cover everything again. I think we've covered that a bit in the past here, but um, it was about a seven-day-long uh, celebration. There was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were kind of blended together. And uh, the city of Jerusalem swelled with pilgrims because it was the duty of every Jewish male within a 15-mile radius to attend this feast. And also Jews from all over made it their, their purpose to come at least once in their lifetime to have the Passover in the Holy City at the Temple. So the city was full. And um, the significance of the, the Passover, of course, is um, the first Passover was that is, as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, the ten plagues that uh, God beset on, on Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. And the Passover was the final plague. The, the Jews were told to celebrate. Sorry, the Passover wasn't the plague. The Passover was the salvation from the final plague. They were to slaughter an unblemished lamb, and paint its blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over and spare them the final judgment. It was a feast of substitutionary atonement, right? This little lamb was going to die so that the firstborn of this family would not die. The feast of unleavened bread was similar because um, after the Israelites were finally told by Pharaoh, get out of here, stop causing us all this trouble, they left in a hurry and they didn't have time to prepare their proper bread. 
And so they were told to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in commemoration for this. But leaven was also then associated with uh, impurity. Often there's references to the impurity, the, the leaven of the Pharisees, and it was associated with, with uh, bad doctrine and, and, and poor teaching. So leaven was in a sense a, a celebration of purity. So, so the Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to, for the celebration of this feast. So that's the setting here. So I read a commentator on this I, in preparation for this. You read different commentaries and different people who have studied these things. And uh, one of the comments on this passage today was that, um, and if you really study this, we can really get into the weeds, which we're not going to do this morning. There's some discrepancies in timing, uh, what events happened first and what later. And, and of course, we know that the Gospels are written by different people at different times with different perspectives. But one of the commentaries was um, that these events here that we read this morning didn't necessarily happen in a chronological order. And, um, and so anyways, that's, that's beside the point. But the, the point that I want to make this morning or draw your attention to is there's three little stories here, right? They seem unrelated, there's this, the, the talk about the Pharisees that want to catch Jesus. And then there's the anointing. And then there's Judas. And it's such an interesting contrast because you have the Pharisees planning, scheming, like a yeast, like a cancer that grows, right? Their anger, their hate towards Jesus is increasingly growing. And they're just planning and scheming to take him off the chessboard to kill him. Then you have the story in the middle of this woman at the supper, just pouring out her life, pouring out her love, just in, a, in an impassioned, unplanned, kind of just irresponsible, it seems, just gushing out love for her Lord. And then you have another little story here at the end of Judas, who is one of the 12, one of the disciples who followed Jesus and heard all his teachings and, and, and listened to his ministry and saw the miracles, doing something selfish for himself not thinking of Jesus, but thinking of his own, his own desire for financial gain and betraying someone who he called Lord and Master and who dined with, right? So you have the story of hate and then the story of love and then another story of hate. And it's interesting how, how Mark puts those together. So um, just, to, just to contrast those, those behaviors. Verses 1 and 2 are not new to us, right? We've heard a lot about how the Pharisees are planning to kill Jesus. But the interesting thing about th those two verses is how we plan, we have plans. Men make our own plans, right? And, and women make our own plans. We, we calculate and we scheme. And the, the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they were looking for a way to kill Jesus. And they wanted to do it on their timetable, right? They said, well, we want to do this. We better hurry up and do it, but we don't want to do it during, during the festival or during the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. The city of Jerusalem is full of, by some estimates, millions of people even, right? All these pilgrims had come. There's a lot of uh, sense of national identity and, and religious fervor, and they didn't want to cause a big riot. They didn't want to cause any sort of upset with the, the, the Romans who were occupying Palestine. And so they said, let's do it. Let's do it after, right? We don't want to do this during the Passover. But God had a different plan. 
as we see, right? We're going to see later in, in Mark, God had a different plan. As we know, his plan was that his son would die in line with the Passover because his son was the symbolic, the final Passover lamb, right? That would be slaughtered and his blood would be shed for the atonement of all these people's sins right at the time when all these innocent little lambs were being slaughtered and sacrificed in a ritual ceremony. In a ritual ceremony, God's final Passover lamb, his son Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed as the final as the final uh, sacrifice. It was God's plan, right? Nothing could interrupt God's plan and his timing. So often we make our own plans and we have our own ideas and we get frustrated when our plans don't line up with what we want to do, but God has his plan. And as it says in Ephesians 1 verse 11, he, he knows all things and he works all things according to his plan. <laughs> All right, so the Pharisees had put out, had put out a, the equivalent of a wanted sign. Wanted for blasphemy, right? If you see this man, turn him in. I don't know if they actually had a sign, but they put word out on the street. Anybody knowing where Jesus was, let us know and uh, we want to arrest him. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany, um, which is a small village on the Mount of Olives. It's... Uh, um, Jerusalem is on the Temple Mount. There's a valley between, and then there's Bethany, which is a little village about three kilometers away. Um, some would say it was sort of a, a bedroom community of Jerusalem, especially when there was a big, uh, a, a big feast like the Passover because the city just couldn't hold everybody, and so a lot of people would pour into these little villages and stay there. Um, but Jesus had been to Bethany before. He had some friends there, and if you know the story of Lazarus, who... Uh, whose sisters Mary and Martha, Jesus raised from the dead, right? So he had some acquaintances and friends there, and he was invited for dinner um, at uh, Simon the leper's house, we're told. And we have to be careful when we amend scripture. And I don't... (laughs) Simon probably wasn't the leper, he was probably the, the former leper, right? Because if Simon was a leper, he wouldn't be in, inside having a big dinner with friends. So this was Simer, Simon, who was a former leper. And uh, this is where Jesus was, was having dinner. And um, so, so Jesus was in the camp companionship of, of all of his friends. And, and we don't have a full guest list, but we can speculate there's probably... Um, this Mr. Simon's family, and there was Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there as well, probably. And um, the, the, the disciples, probably all 12 of them, were not told the full guest list, but it, it would be fairly common to have, have this group gathered together here for dinner. And um, so as we read in uh, verse 3, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, made of nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So to us, that seems a little bit odd, right? If somebody came over to your house for dinner and you just got out some stuff and poured it on their head, you'd probably get smacked and they would just leave (laughs) and take their bottle of wine with you and head out the door. In those days, anointing with oil was considered a a sign of honor. You would do it especially for, for, for special guests coming to your house. 
Often you would pour oil on their head. Sometimes they would smear it on the forehead. Sometimes they would anoint the feet um, as, a, as a sign of honor and reference. And of course, don't forget, Jesus the Messiah, Messiah means the anointed one. So he's already been anointed, right? Um, and so this woman who poured this oil on him reinforced that anointing. It also wasn't uncommon to use a, a perfume or something with a scent because this was a time in the Middle East, people walked around with open-toed footwear. They didn't have access to baths and showers and, and you know, laundry facilities every day. Um, they worked hard, they got sweaty, they walked outdoors. And then you put all these people in an inner room, which is not air-conditioned. You can imagine there's a bit of odor, so it was a was a kind thing to do, was a, was a necessary thing to do to have some perfume to mask some of the odor. Especially when you're reclining at a table and so you get people's feet and, and heads and things are all sort of on the same level. So it was something not really all that extraordinary to do, right? Um, so up to this point, the story's not very interesting. It's all very quite normal. But what happens here is here's this woman and we're not told who this woman is in Mark, but if we cheat a little bit and go over to the Gospel of John in chapter 12, um, we're told that she is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So this woman has a, has a jar of this expensive, this alabaster jar of, of this expensive perfume, an alabaster. I googled it, you can do the same. It's just like it's a soft kind of marble. You can carve it into a little vase or little jar. And it was full of this this perfume called nard. It says pure nard. Um, nard or spike nard is this, it comes from the Himalayas. It's a plant like honeysuckle that grows in this very specific area and it has tiny little spikes on and, and I guess if you squeeze them or whatever, you can get this oil out. And anyways, it sounds like a very tedious process of getting this oil out. And it was, it says it was pure nard. So you can imagine how expensive and how precious this jar was. Later we'll find out that this jar, this jar or this, this container of, of this, this nard was worth about a year's of wages for an average worker, right? It's, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, none of us can really imagine having this. Some of the commentators also uh, suggested that this could have been like an heirloom, like, a, like a, um, a dowry, part of a dowry, part of a bride price that had, had been passed down through the family and that this was, you know, to explain why she would have this. Why would anybody have something of such great value in their home, right? It could have been an heirloom. And that the intended purpose was that on very, very special occasions, probably you would take this alabaster jar and you would just take one little, one little dip of it and you would put one little drop on your special guest's forehead as a sign that they were very special and very honored. But what does she do? She doesn't take one little drop. She doesn't even like pour the bottle on there. She gushes the bottle on Jesus and then she breaks it almost as if to say, this is it. It's empty. Look like it's all on you. This is all I'm giving you all of this. It's incredible, right? Like imagine you're there and you're seeing this, this very, very precious oil, this perfume, with an incredible value just poured out all onto Jesus' head. And, and what is your response? 
what would our response have been? What's, what's their response, right? All the other guests there are going, oh, good for you. You're, that's a great example. You know, Mary, you're showing good leadership in here. And, and yes, we should worship Jesus as Lord. Come around. Let's all gather around, bow at Jesus' feet. Let us also honor him. Let us also worship him. He is, he is, he's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of us pouring out everything that we have and giving it to his feet. Was that the response? Nope. <laughs> As we see here, verse 4, some of those present were saying indignant, indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? This could have been sold for more than a year's wages. Come on, like just, they're aghast. We could have given the money to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Right? I put myself in that spot, right? Sometimes we see someone doing something that we think is radical and extreme and it's always easy to, it's always easy to say like, what are they doing? Come on, like, have a little bit of sensibility here. That's really extreme. Do you have to go so far? Right? I think it's easy for us to read this passage and, 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 and to judge these disciples who are, who are judging Mary, right? But if you think about it, I think in our hearts often we've done, we might not have said it openly, but we thought those things. Oh, so-and-so, that's extreme. Look at them sacrificing so much. What happened here, again, um, if we skip over to John, we find out that the instigator of this discussion uh, was none other than Judas. Right? In uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 4, it says some of those present were saying indignantly, but in, in John's gospel, we find out it was Judas who led this discussion. We know that Judas was one of the 12 disciples and he was the keeper of the, of the money bag, the purse. And he liked to be in charge of that because it gave him the ability to skim a little bit off the top and put it in his own pocket, right? Nobody would notice a little bit, a little bit for you, a little bit for me. And so that was Judas' motivation. And I'm sure he would have enjoyed having a year's wages extra in that money bag and having a little bit extra in his back pocket. But it's interesting to me that, and maybe some of you can relate, right? You're in a discussion and somebody says something and how easy it is for us to pile on and say, yeah, yeah, what about that, right? It's easy to follow the crowd. Someone says something and you follow the crowd and later you go, why did I, why did I do that? Why did I agree with that? Why did I laugh when that guy told that joke because everybody else was laughing? Why did I nod my head when they were talking about such and such and I knew that wasn't right, right? We just, we just like to go with the crowd and blend in and keep our head down and, and, and not stick out. And, th- and this was probably what happened here with the disciples, right? Some of the disciples... Judas said, oh, oh, don't waste all that. That could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And they said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? They chimed in instead of, instead of, rebuking, instead of rebuking Judas. What was Mary's motivation? Right? Was she, uh, was she donating this to Jesus because she was going to get a nice tax break? <laughs> no. Was she doing this extravagant thing here because she wanted to be on the front page of the news and wanted to be 
lauded as, as, as Mary the most generous lover of Jesus? Was she doing it because she planned it you know, and said, well, if I do this right and, and you know, Jesus is going to have this kingdom here one day, we're not really sure yet if it's going to be an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom, but I think he's going to be a great leader here and I just want to... I just want to cozy up to Jesus and impress him. Was that her motivation? No, it was none of those. It was just because she had an outpouring of love. Like the songs we sang this morning, she understood all the things that Jesus had done for her and had taught her. And it was just her, her passion, her unplanned, her, her reckless, some would say silly behavior, just to say, Jesus, I'm giving all of this to you. This is, this is my whatever that perfume represented, her life savings, her, her, her old, old age security, her, her dowry, her future opportunities, her, her comfort in knowing that she has this value that she can trade once, uh, you know, if she was to end up in poverty. This, this, this perfume represented all of those things. And she just said, here, take it. I want you to have it and I'm breaking the jar so no, you can't give it back, right? I'm laying this all on you because I love you and I honor you and I recognize you as king. So what's Jesus' response? So Jesus says, right, leave it to Jesus. He's the one who sticks up for the underdog. He says, no guys, leave her alone. Back off. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, right? Jesus had a way with words. He's like, if you guys are so concerned about the poor, well, help them. Help, you can help them anytime. Help them yesterday or tomorrow or anytime. Why are you suddenly so concerned about the poor, you guys? Come on. He calls, he calls us out, right? And Jesus has a way of speaking into our lives where it's like, oh, yeah. That's me he's talking to. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what my motivations are. And, and he convicts us, right? So he says, the poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So I don't know if Mary was thinking this far ahead. Like I just said, I think this was just a, this was her, her passioned expression of love for Jesus as Lord. But the symbolism of pouring perfume on Jesus' body and then breaking this jar, those who lived at the time would have understood when, when a, a Jew was buried according to proper uh, custom, they would embalm the body and, 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 and perfume it they would um, anoint it with, with perfumed oil and then they would break the jar, the container of that perfume and they would bury the shards of that jar around the body as a way of saying, this jar can never be used for anything else and you shall also have the remnants of this, this broken pottery, this broken jar um, to, to you know, go with you in your burial. So this was significant and Jesus draws their attention to that. So much of Jesus' ministry, he'd been telling his disciples that there was going to be an end to his ministry. He said, I'm going away, right? Where I'm going, you cannot be. He said, I'm going away. My death is coming. 
And the disciples were often like, yeah, what are you talking about? You're going to be like a great religious leader. I don't think so. But Jesus had kept telling them, no, I am preparing to die. I am preparing to sacrifice my life. And here again, he says, no, what Mary has done, she's done a good thing. She has, she's done a, 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 now what's the word here? There was a, a in Greek, lost in my notes. It wasn't just a good thing as in a moral good. It was a, it was a kind thing. It was a beautiful thing that she has done, right? Um, and Jesus said, she has done this in preparation for my burial. He knows, Jesus knows, that the end of his earthly ministry is near, right? The time for his arrest and his trial and mock trial, his torture and execution and death and rising again is near. And so he's reminding them yet again, this is the plan. This is what I'm here for. This is what I've come to do. And Jesus willingly goes forward and, and obeys the Father the Father's plan for him to, to die as the final sacrifice. So, what's the point of this story? You know, I kind of, I, I felt this speaking to me because I'm like one of those people, unlike my father that I earlier told, I like to get out my calculator and my spreadsheet and get my, my glasses down on my nose and plan things and and, and, and do the right thing, do the, you know, do the thing that makes sense. But does God really want us to always do things that make sense? Now, I'm not saying never plan things, don't ever use your mind, don't ever hire an engineer to do a calculation when you're installing your electrical wires or whatever. God gave us some minds that are, you know, and smart people for all kinds of wonderful reasons. But, there's times when God calls us to do things that other people in the world might say, that's reckless. That's, that's kind of stupid. That doesn't make sense. When Jesus called the first disciples, he said, come and follow me, right? And they didn't say, well, you know, I don't have time right now, but uh, next week I can just let me like put the roof on my house there and tidy up some things and, and I'll, I'll get back to you next week. No, they, they left everything and they followed him. A lot of their friends and family probably said, that's kind of that's reckless. That's not really responsible. What are, you, what are you doing? Probably heard lots of stories of, of missionaries. Um, my daughter came home from Sunday school. I think they're talking missionary stories right now. And she reminded me of the story of five young men who, I think in the 50s, um, young American missionaries, they all had wives. I think some of them had kids. And they decided, they, were, they, they got, well, they didn't decide because <laughs> it's not a smart decision. They felt the call of the Lord to minister to um, unsaved peoples of the Amazon in Ecuador. I think they were called the Akua Indians. And, and I might have the word wrong, but Akua means like savages. I mean, they were, these people were, they would kill for sport. They were known among the other tribes as, as killing for any reason and no reason. And these five young American men and their wives and their families decided this is the Lord's call. This is where we have to go. We need to reach these people for the Lord. These people have not been reached for the Lord. It is our call, our duty to go. 
And I'm sure their friends and family said, are you nuts? Are you like, give me a break. That's like a death sentence. Why would you do that? That's irresponsible. That's reckless. You will certainly die. But they went anyways. They obeyed the call of the Lord. And if you know the rest of the story, they went there and uh, they did sacrifice their lives. But the good story, the good ending of that story is that many of them in that tribe were saved as a result of that years later. Reckless and irresponsible. When I was young, um, when I was a young man, I had the privilege of having a, a youth pastor and he told me the story once. Uh, when he was young, he had an aspiring career as a professional volleyball player. He was on the national Canadian team and he was doing really well. He got invited to the Olympics. Um, I can't tell you what year it was, but he had the successful athletic career in front of him and he was studying to become a petrochemical engineer. And this was in Calgary at the time. I think it was in the eighties during the height of the, I mean, he could have had a great job and a great career and he had it all. He had it all, but he felt the call of the Lord. And that call was to enter youth ministry. And so he threw all that away. He said, no thanks to the Olympic team. That's too much time to train and that's not my life's goal. He didn't pursue a career in engineering in the oil industry. And he went to seminary. He became a youth pastor. He had a huge impact on my life. And, you know, that's the seed that that was sown in my life. And many in his life were probably telling him, Harold, what are you doing? Like, come on, you got a great, you got a great opportunity, a great job, your career, your sports. And just like Judas, just like many of these disciples, right? Someone might have said, oh, but you know, but, but you can, you can have all this over here and just think if you're a great superstar athlete, what a great ministry opportunity that will be, right? Planting those seeds of doubt. Oh, if you become a, a successful engineer, you'll have lots of money and you'll be able to give it to, to charity and, and to the poor, right? So it's so easy for, for the world to come in and, and plant those seeds of doubt right? But he obeyed and, and he followed the Lord and he became a youth pastor. And, and um, yeah, someone I still admire to this day. So is God calling all of us to sell everything we have and fly across the world and go to Ecuador? Or is God calling us to quit our jobs and do something different? I don't know, right? That's between you and the Lord. But I, I know that we all have something like like that flask of precious perfume right we all have something that gives us security gives us comfort um allows us to uh you know be 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 comfortable and and convenient gives us convenience in our lives and the lord's saying don't don't keep all that for yourself you know, is there something, is there, can you pour that out for me? And it might not, like I say, it might not be going around the world to become a missionary, but maybe it's instead of spending that Saturday afternoon doing all your chores that you got to do on Saturday afternoon, giving that time to visit someone who hasn't been able to make a church to church in a while because they're, they're stuck at home or they're stuck in the hospital. Maybe it's someone who's, you know, and some of you might be able to relate to this, right? You got a bunch of young kids at home and you've decided to homeschool and do all that, that craziness, right? 
and the others are snickering, your friends and family are snickering, and well, you know, I just send my kids to school, off on the bus they go, and then I can do my, go to my yoga class, and then I have my, get my hair done, and then I can go and have lunch with my friends, and I have my day to myself. Why, why, why would you do that? Why would you homeschool? That's crazy. You're irresponsible. That's reckless, right? What about someone who has a lot of their own kids and decides to adopt or to foster someone, especially something, someone with special needs, right? And you might say, well, that's like, I don't know, is that kind of irresponsible? I mean, look, you got to look after your own health. You got to look after your own kids and you got to, you got to look after your own stuff, right? That's irresponsible. And I think the Lord's calling us to do things that the world thinks are ridiculous. It doesn't make sense to the world. Sometimes, you know, it's just, it's just speaking out, right? It's so easy for us to keep our head low and blend in with the culture around us and the chatter at the office cooler, the water cooler at the office. Maybe the Lord's calling you to pour out your reputation and when, some, when the talk is going a certain way and everyone's nodding in agreement, maybe you're... Your job is to speak up and, and pour out your reputation and say, no, I, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. I disagree. And your coworkers and your neighbors and your golf buddies, they might say, well, I don't know. What's, what's wrong with you? I thought, I didn't think you were one of those religious crazy people. Right? But our job is to, I think God's calling us to, to pour that out. The world that we live in is, is all about me and just like Judas, right? It's all about putting up, put put yourself as number one, and you know, take care of number one first. And you know, the verse, the the do the right thing has become the the sort of the, the the mantra of the day, right? Take care of number one and do the right thing and do the responsible thing. But God's kingdom doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. There's things that we're called to do that don't always make sense. He's calling us to be the Lord of our lives, not for our own comfort and for our own convenience and security, but for his glory. We're to live for his glory. And we need to abandon the need and the desire to live for ourselves all the time and, and to give it to him. And that's hard. I'm not standing up here sweating <laughs> because I've got all this figured out. I'm glad there's not a plinth here where I, you get to stand on a higher platform I'm reading this and I'm saying to a friend the other day, it's like I'm preaching to the guy in the mirror because I'm looking at this going, yeah, there's, there's challenges here. This isn't, this isn't easy, right? Jesus didn't say, take up your cushioned Cadillac and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. So that's my prayer for us, right? That we would reflect that in our hearts and in our lives. What's God calling us to do? where, you know, you have the option of doing the, the sensible thing, the convenient thing, the comfortable thing, or will you follow the call of Christ? So that's our challenge today. So I just want to pray for that, Lord. Your word is, is here for a purpose, and we thank you for it. And it challenges us. It can be uncomfortable sometimes to hear things that um, maybe we'd rather not hear. It would have been nice to hear 
the message about how good we are and how wonderful heaven is going to be. But you want us to challenge ourselves to increasingly conform us to your image, Lord. And you know where each one of us is at in our, in our walk with you, in our journey with you, Lord. And I just pray that you would work in our hearts and just little by little, day by day, help us to think less of ourselves on the throne of our own lives and more of you, Lord, that we wouldn't live for our own glory and riches and fame and comfort, but would put things at your feet and and pour out those important things that we have and pour them at your, give them, put them on your head and on your feet to honor you, Lord. I pray that as we go this week, Lord, that you would remind us of these things and, and challenge us and work in our hearts. Lord, I pray for soft hearts to receive this message and to work in them. I pray this in your name. Amen.